thank you, Lord, for reminding us that through Christ we will triumph. That did we in our own strength wage war, our striving would be losing. Thank you for that word above all words that will destroy our enemy, the devil, and all of his works. Thank you that we win through your son, Jesus. Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, I pray that you would remind us of reality as it is, that you would encourage us to know ourselves, um, to know ourselves impacted by your sovereign grace moving towards us. Give us the humility that that would bring. Give us the pride that that would bring. Give us the courage that that would bring. Give us the love that that idea would bring to know ourselves pursued by the hound of heaven. Would you open this, your word, to us? Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. There are, there, there's no seeing and savoring Christ apart from your work. And so we would see Jesus and therefore, we desperately need you. So, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you exalt the name of Jesus here among us? Um, we ask it in his name. Amen. All right, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Um, you guys doubtless know uh, all of Newton's laws by heart, right? Uh, his laws of physics. An object at rest tends to stay at rest. Y'all know that, right? So an object at rest tends to stay at rest. What about an object in motion? Do you, do you know what happens? Tends to stay in motion unless... Do you know the unless? Unless... Yeah, yeah. Man, you guys are super sharp. Did y'all just study this this morning? I, uh, I, had to, I had to Google it. Yeah. So an object at rest tends to stay at rest. An object in motion tends to stay at motion unless acted upon by an outside force, right? Those are the laws of physics. Now... That is, if you, were to, if you were to apply that to theology, that's still consistent. God, who created all of the things that you see, is a very consistent God. People at rest tend to stay at rest. People in motion tend to stay at motion unless acted upon by an outside source. What we're going to see today in Acts chapter 9, uh, if you, in your Bible, if you have that... Um, that little moniker over the, over the top of Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Saul. Uh, circle the word conversion. This is one of the great texts in our scripture about how people are converted to Christianity. How is it that somebody who is um, either completely um, neutral to Jesus, you talk to them about Jesus and they say, hey man, that's great for you, I don't really care. Or somebody who, like the Apostle Paul, is vehemently opposed to the name of Christ. How is it that either of those people could ever find Christ as their great treasure, as the great treasure of their life? How does that happen? Well, applying our object of, or our um, Newton's law of physics, uh, we could say with authority, it doesn't happen because they decide for it to happen. They are acted on by an outside force. That force is the sovereign God of the Bible. And Paul is going to demonstrate this to us. Excuse me. I'm going to do that, by the way, all day long. I'm going to call him Paul. He's called Saul. His name hasn't changed yet, so just give me some grace, all right? Um, so you're in, you're in uh, Acts chapter 9, and we're going to observe our way through this. Beside verse 1, I want you to write down the word lost. Lost. Listen to the description of Saul. But Saul, 
still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay? There's a whole bunch to point out here, uh, but I'm going to have to be somewhat brief. So, um, the, the, way that, the way that Luke, in writing the book of Acts, the way that he transitions from Philip to the story of Saul's conversion is somewhat startling. It's a very abrupt, he just, but Saul is still breathing threats and murder. I think what Luke is doing, he introduced Saul in between the tale of two deacons, right? The tale of Stephen the deacon who was stoned and the tale of Philip the deacon who goes and, I don't know, evangelizes everybody. So it's the tale of two faithful deacons, and Paul is, or Saul is mentioned in the middle over in, uh, at the end of, our, of chapter 7, at the beginning of chapter 8. Saul approved of his execution. Witnesses up in uh, chapter 7, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So he's introduced over there, and then Luke just kind of sets him aside on the shelf for a moment and tells us about another deacon who goes and wins uh, Samaritans and an Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. And now we're going to rejoin with Saul, but Saul still breathing threats and murder. So it's, it's drawing our attention back to Saul's interaction with Stephen. But Saul is what's known in, um, you know, the old world as a murderer. He's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And because of that, he goes to the high priest and asks him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus. By the way, uh, circle the word letters and write irony in the side of your uh, in the side of that. Do you know what the Apostle Paul is most famous for? Letters, epistles. That's this word, epistles. Epistles that he wrote to do what? Why did Paul write First and Second Corinthians, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians? Why did he do that? To build up the body of Christ. This guy takes letters to build them up. Right here, as a lost man, he asks for letters to go tear it apart. I want letters. I want epistles that gives me authority to go and destroy the body of Christ. And this guy is going to be the one that takes the authority received from Christ, turns it into letters that in no uncertain terms has done more to build up the body of Christ than any other means. God has used this guy's letters. Amen? Have you guys ever benefited from Romans or Galatians or Ephesians? Of course we have. All because of this guy. It's an amazing irony that at the beginning of his uh, hatred for Christ, he wants letters. And at the end of his life, he's writing letters to extol the glories of Jesus Christ. What he wants to do is he wants to find everybody or anyone belonging to the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So this is Paul's predicament, that he is absolutely lost. Now I want you to see this about, as we, as we look at conversion, it's very important that we remember, there is no such thing as a neutral person. That somebody that's outside of Christ is just sort of good, decent chap, just outside of Christ. There are two ways. There is submission to Christ and there's rebellion against him. Now, there, there's varying degrees of rebellion, whether ignorance or uh, rebelling in knowledge. There's all of these things, but the, the fact remains that everyone outside of Christ has not bowed the knee to their rightful Lord. This is everyone 
outside of Christ finds some sort of commonality with Paul opposing the lordship of Jesus. Now, pop quiz, who should we pity? Should we pity the church that's about to receive this guy breathing out threats and murder against her? Should we pity the church? What do you think? We should pity this guy. This guy is void of the life of Christ. And it's a very dangerous, dangerous place to be. Jesus said, whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is everybody. Everybody is, belongs to one of two ways, with Christ or against him. Okay, beside uh, verse 3, I want you to write the word love. All of these words are not going to be L words. The first three are. Don't judge me. Okay, beside verse 3, write the word love. Uh, this is maybe as good as it's going to get for us today by way of encouragement. So Paul, Saul, is going to arrest men and women who belong to Christ, and he's going to bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, notice that he's going on his way, not Christ's way. He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Lord, I've never touched you. I've just been arresting these people. Right? Do you see, do you see what Jesus does there? Why are you persecuting me? Saul's never touched Jesus. He's never persecuted Jesus. But this is Jesus speaking, and he says, you are persecuting me. Who is Paul persecuting? The church. What we have here is the solidarity of Christ with his body. It's an amazing word. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This is Jesus, his me and his mind. Um, it's really a fascinating thing, right? We, um, we've told you guys about the coffee shop in town that our kids get to go to. And one of the things that, uh, that's so precious about that place is how kind they are to our kids. Um, they are extremely kind. And therefore, if I have any power to do them good, I'm going to do them good because they're really kind to our people. Now imagine, imagine for a moment, if they were not just unkind, it's not that they just ignored my people, but if they were rude or unkind or attacked them or did something to, to wound them. And imagine that I am omnipotent. I have the power to do anything I want to do to these people. What do you think would be the case? This is Christ showing how, how closely, how, how, um, how intimately connected with his people he is. Would you hear this? That when somebody touches you, they touch the apple of God's eye. Did you know that? That if somebody comes to you because you bear the name of Christ and they persecute you, Jesus says, Jesus receives it as persecution against himself. Um, I read a story a while ago about some Satanists that broke into a Catholic church. And they stole um, the Eucharist. They stole the communion. And they did that because in the Catholic church, the view is that the bread becomes his physical body and the wine becomes his physical blood. And so they stole it so that they could have a physical representation of Jesus to re-crucify, to re-persecute. 
And so they brought them back to their, their Cygnus worship service and they stomped them and did all manner of things uh, to them. And the silliest part of that is they bypassed the real body of Christ. If they wanted to wound the body of Christ, they could have grabbed one of us because Jesus views us as his own body. He says uh, in a both a negative and positive way, whatever you do to the least of these my brothers, you do unto me. Right? Um, there's coming a time where he's going to se- uh, uh, separate sheep from goats. And the goats, he's going to say, depart from me because you never visit. I was sick and you didn't visit. I-, I was in prison, you didn't come to me. I was hungry, you didn't feed me. And they're going to say, when? When, did, when were you in need and we didn't come to you? These are my brothers and you didn't do that for them. And in the same way, he's going to say to the sheep, come in. You visited me when I was in prison. You healed me when I was, uh, when I was sick. You fed me when I was hungry. And they're going to say, when? When did we do that? As often as you did, the, did this to the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. Look at the, the solidarity of Christ. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He does it twice, okay? So, right out beside verse 6, write the word limits. This is fascinating. Why are you, uh, Saul says uh, in verse 5, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise... Enter a city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, you and I have a very great problem because we're familiar with this text. Uh, Without reading ahead, do you know the guy that comes to him? What's his name? Anybody? Ananias, right? Um, We know that this guy's going to come in, lay hands on him, that he's going to be healed of his blindness. We know these things. We know Paul is going to become the great uh, missionary apostle. Um, I just want you to see this and sit in it for a moment that Jesus doesn't tell him everything he needs to know. Jesus does not tell him the gospel. Jesus doesn't tell him, hey, this is what's wrong. You're a sinner. I'm a savior. You've got to repent of your sin and trust in me. Jesus doesn't tell him any of that. He gives him some general instructions. He says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. You need to rise and enter a city and you will be told what you are to do. So the question is, why in the world... Does Jesus not tell him everything that he needs to know right here? Why doesn't Jesus preach the gospel to him? It would make tons of sense. We might ask the same thing. Why didn't, instead of the angel of the Lord going to Philip uh, to tell him to go find the Ethiopian eunuch, why didn't the angel of the Lord go to the Ethiopian eunuch and tell him the gospel? Why, Why is he doing this? Why is the Spirit going to give Peter a vision and say, go visit Cornelius Why doesn't the Spirit of the Lord, the angel that goes to Cornelius and says, sin for Peter, why doesn't he just tell him the gospel there? Why? Why does Jesus limit what he reveals to to Saul? I think there's a thousand reasons I'm going to give you two. First is Saul's pride. This is, we are told, the first thing we're told about him uh, is that uh, during the stoning of Stephen, witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So he's young, but he's in authority. They're laying down their coats at his feet. He is the one that goes to the, uh, the high priest now. Think of like the president. Any of you guys get to go to the president's office and get letters of authority? No, because you're not big, great stuff. Neither am I. This guy goes to the highest authority in his sect 
And he is entrusted with a derived authority. So he's very, very important and very, very young and very, very proud. And so because Jesus loves him, you can imagine this really proud guy gets a vision of Jesus. Jesus tells him the gospel, tells him everything he needs to know, and then he goes forth to be ahead of the church. How prideful he's going to remain. Do you know what Saul needs? He needs to be blind and dumb for three days, and then he needs some nobody to come and say, I know exactly what you need, right? He needs that. Do you know where you see Ananias again in your scripture? Do you know? You never see him again. He shows up, this this absolute nobody in Damascus that gets to lead the most influential man in the history of the church to faith in Christ. It's an amazing statement about the the humbling of Saul that that he doesn't give Saul everything he needs, which is, it's really cool, right? One of the greatest, one of the first graces that God will give us in bringing us to his son is just to crush, right? Just to tear us down. So Saul is not yet ready. He's not yet humble enough to receive from Christ. And so he needs to be helped by nobody. The second reason is that Jesus loves to do things by his church. He loves to do that. He loves to do through the agency of his church, okay? I do a lot of things, and I have been doing more and more things through the agency of my son because I'm preparing him for manhood, and if he doesn't ever know how to bear responsibility, how to have a task that's his, that if he doesn't do it and do it well, it's gonna fall and fail. He needs that kind of pressure to prepare him for manhood. Um, And as well, I'm... I'm giving him that pressure. I'm giving him that, that um, assignment, that authority, because that's bringing glory to Christ. I'll give you an example of this. We were, again, at the coffee shop, and the kids were not with us. And one of the people that works at the coffee shop, they said, hey, we just want to tell you your kids are fantastic. I'm like, well, I know that. Thank you for, thank you for telling me. Um, and this lady said, one of the things I've noticed one of the things I've noticed, I've looked out and I've seen, you know, all your kids sort of like they come in and they get their coffee and then they go sit in the back and they get out their books and they, they start working and they're reading their Bibles, doing various things. But she said, one of the things I've noticed is Eli watching over his his sisters, like like sheep and shepherd, like he's just around them. He's, he's watching. Now, what's fantastic about that is that's me watching my kids through the agency of my son. That may sound crazy to you. But it's also Christ watching over our kids through the agency of Eli. You see that? Like, there is a a desire of of Christ to use us to do the work for which he, the work that he is trying to do. This is what the ancients called a vocation, a calling. Martin Luther said that it's it's Christ milking the cow via the milkmaid. Think about how fantastic your your uh, outlook on life would be if you really believe that you had a vocation, that it is Christ, reminding myself of this morning, it is Christ who is preaching the sermon and he's just using me. It's Christ who is changing the diaper, but he's using somebody else, right? The, the agency that, that uh, so he wants to humble. Why does Jesus not give Saul everything he needs? He wants to humble Saul and he wants to exalt Ananias and use Ananias. Ananias gets to be gets to have the privilege of leading the most influential Christian ever to faith in Christ. It's a profound thing. 
So he doesn't. I just want you to know this. Paul leaves the presence of Christ not yet saved. That's amazing. He doesn't give him everything he needs. All right. So beside verse 7, I want you to write the word, and you don't have to spell it right, befuddlement or some synonym thereof, confusion, something like that. I like the word befuddlement. Look, in, uh, look at the themes that Luke is playing with here. The men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. So we've already been told that Paul saw a great light. We know that he's going to come away blind. So this oxymoron of like great light, which light always is given so that we can see, this light blinds. Now you hear that uh, you see these guys, they're hearing the voice, but they see no one. Saul rose from the ground, although his eyes were open, they, he saw nothing. So they had to lead him by the hand and bring him to Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight, neither ate nor, uh, nor drank, right? The idea, the idea here, the, again, the first kindness that Jesus shows lost men is to break them. If we had time, and we do not, uh, but if we had time to go around and share a testimony of those, particularly those adults who came, to, who came to faith in Christ later on in life, I think we would see a common mega theme of chasing one thing or, or resting in one thing, loving one thing, and then Christ coming in and changing that, taking that from them so that he can be their light. So he takes Saul's sight. He takes the... The understanding from these men, I think, by the way, uh, we're told later on, the voice speaks to him in Hebrew. And so these guys hear, but apparently didn't know Hebrew. And so they weren't able, it wasn't intelligible to them. But you have this uh, truth being revealed, but it can't be seen. It can't be heard. It can't, any of these things. They are still dependent upon the Lord to bring light and to bring clarity. Now, verse 10, write the word direction. This is awesome. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So Ananias gets the directions. Okay? Um, all right, so the question is, why does God pick this guy? What is it about Ananias that makes him ready and able to lead Saul to faith? The first thing you see is availability. Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord, and the command is rise and go. By the way, uh, Aaron pointed this out in uh, elder prayers. We observed this. That's the same command that God gives uh, Jonah. Get up and go. Rise and go. Um, it's the same command that he gives um, that he gives Philip to get up and go to a desert place, um, and Ananias is available, right? He's not so overcome with the duties of life that he's not willing to to follow when God says get up and go. Um, this is fantastic. Uh, he receives Ananias receives the instructions that Paul was lacking. Paul was told. To go to a uh, go to a street, or he says, uh, rise, enter the city, and you will be told what to do. So I'm not going to tell you all the specifics. You just go into the city and wait. God comes to Ananias, his his evangelist, and he sends him with specifics. 
rise, go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man named Tarsus, of Tarsus, named Saul. For behold, he is praying. So God has prepared Saul. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. I love that he sees it in a vision. His eyes are blind, and so he's having to see via vision. A man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So he's available. He's also honest. Look at his response. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Now, notice what you don't see there. You don't see an out. You don't see Ananias asking for a way out. God, I don't don't really want to do this. All he does is he's honest about his fear, and he brings to the Lord this great um, concern about the evil of Paul. I have heard many things about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. So he doesn't then follow that up with, therefore, pick somebody else. He's available. He's honest. And he has the humility to to follow when God directs. Um, There's a very important principle here about faith. Um, Faith is trust that seeks understanding, not uh, seeking understanding so that we will trust, right? When God comes to us and says, I want you to go do this, um, you you don't ask questions with the idea that I'm not going to believe it, I'm not going to obey it unless... I understand it. We believe, trust, and obey first, and then we can seek understanding. This is the difference between Mary and Zechariah uh, at the beginning of Luke's gospel. So Ananias is available. He's humble. He's honest. And then he's willing to go do what Jesus tells him to do. Now, maybe the most important word that we've got right out beside verse 15, write the word sovereignty. Write the word sovereignty. Now listen, you got, a, you got a Christian, Ananias, who's been told, go to this place and lead this guy to faith. And that guy happens to be a murdering Jesus hater. Ananias reminds the Lord, in case God had forgotten, of all of the evil that Saul is guilty of. He has authority now to bind us. And so if I go in the name of Jesus and something goes awry, I'm liable to be arrested. Watch what God responds as a, how God responds as a comfort to Ananias. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Question. How in the world can God make this, much, this many plans about a guy who has not yet given consent? Like, at this moment in time, Saul is not a follower of Jesus. He is not pursuing um, a, a calling for the sake of his name among all nations. He's not doing that. He's doing the exact opposite. So how can this God come and say, I have great plans for this guy? He hasn't even popped the question, and he's building the house already marriage like this is a there's something extremely important that we would understand about the way in which God calls us into a relationship with himself we tend to think that it's like God is this really handsome um, starting quarterback in high school and he comes to the babe of the senior class to ask her to go to prom with him and he's sweaty pits 
right? And he's nervous and he's fumbling over his words. And then he has to, he has to ask and he's got to sit and he's got to wait for her to accept or reject. And he's just got to like hope for the best, right? And we tend to think that's how God comes when he preaches the gospel. It's like, hey, here I am. Here's what I want to give you. And so are you willing? That is fundamentally not how God comes to us with the gospel. Do you know how he comes? He comes as a conquering king with battering ram to tear the wall down. Did he ask, does he ever ask for Saul's permission? Not one single time. Not one single time. God comes in absolute sovereign grace. Okay? Sovereign grace to Paul. It's a very important, uh, very important distinction I want, to, uh, I want to think about with you here. Um, think about the life of Christ, right? Born, um, born in Bethlehem. He lives 33 some odd years, is crucified, risen. He spends about 40 days with his um, apostles, and then he ascends into heaven. How many of the people who saw with their physical eyes, who saw the risen, who saw Christ, whether in his ministry pre-resurrection or post-resurrection, how many people saw him with their physical eyes and perished apart from him? We don't know how many, but it's safe to say the vast majority of them. Go read the, go read the Gospel of Matthew and take note of how many times Jesus says, so will it be with the men of this generation. It will be more tolerable for the men of Sodom and Gomorrah in the judgment than it will be for the men of this generation. It will be uh, the, the men of Nineveh, he says, will rise up in judgment with the men of this generation. So there's something about the, the people who saw, physically saw Jesus um, that ended up not trusting in him, the vast majority did not trust. Now, let me ask you this. How many people have been born again by the sovereign move of the Holy Spirit? That the Holy Spirit comes, as Jesus talked about, with Nicodemus. The wind blows where it wills. You don't know where it's coming from, where it's going. You just see the effect of it. And it causes men and women to be born again, to see and to savor Christ. How many people have been born again by the Holy Spirit of God and have suffered damnation. Do you know the number? Zero. Nobody. Nobody. This is pointing us to the sovereign grace of God as the Holy Spirit moves in our lives to, to apply the work of Christ to us. This is sovereignty. This is sovereignty. Um, look in. I, would you turn with me, just really quick, keep, keep your finger right there. Turn with me to the beginning of... Um, no, don't turn. Just listen. Just listen to this. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So not only is Jesus everything for you, wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, he is all of those things for you. It is also true that you are in Him because of Him. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Okay. Um, this week, another coffee shop story. This is great. It's our favorite place. We're sitting there drinking coffee. It's raining. And uh, we look down the way and we see a young family coming. Mom's wearing yellow boots and a two-year-old kid is wearing yellow boots. They have a husband carrying a little baby. 
they're coming down the, the way. Immediately, I'm like, we got to know these people. This young family in LaGrange, we're going we're gonna to meet them, and we're going to be best friends and teach them about Jesus. Okay, so they come walking. <clears throat> we engage them in conversation, and super fast friends right away, right? Conversation is easy. They're from Houston. Attorneys from Houston, they've come to just get out of the COVID closet, right, in Houston. So they are hanging out with us, and they have a two-year-old son named Robert. And Robert comes running up right into the midst of our family interacting with our kids. Like, and they're like, hey, sorry, do we need a social distance? And we're like, yeah, no, no stress. So, so we're hanging out right in, in front of the coffee shop there. And there's cars everywhere. And Robert is one of those, uh, yeah, just really excited two-year-old kids that doesn't know that there's death and danger all around him, right? So he's just going, right? 100 miles an hour, going. Um, the parents are all trying to talk, and he's just on occasion, he's, you know, uh, content to do whatever, and then on occasion, he'll just bolt to the road. He just runs to the road. Well, uh, Lila, this is really fantastic, Lila um, didn't feel comfortable, because he's not one of our people, right? We're not besties yet. She would grab Lukey, she would grab some other, but she, she didn't feel comfortable. And so, the, what she would do, so proud, she would jump in between Robert and the road, like put herself between him and certain death. I don't want to grab him because I'm afraid like his parents might misunderstand. And I was watching this. I was watching her try to protect this, this kid, but not want to like take over, right? And so um, they, they went around, he ran around the back, Lila ran around the back. And so I asked Lily, I said, hey, come here, I need you to give Lila a message from me. And I, and I said, I want you to tell Lila that she has my permission to grab Robert and pick him up if he's running to the street, to override what he wants to do and just grab him to save him. And she said, okay, I'll tell him. So she goes back and she tells him, Stephen, the dad comes and it occurred to me, you know, I probably should tell him that I just gave my daughter permission to grab his kid, right? So I told him, it's like, hey, I just told my oldest daughter that if she sees your son bolt into traffic, she can grab him and, and protect him. And this guy said, she has my permission to drag him by the collar if need be. <laughs> she has my permission to tackle him to save his life. If it's for his good, if it's for his life, you've got all the permission in the world to grab him in whatever way you, do, you see fit and yank him back from certain destruction. This is what God does for Saul. And he does not for a moment ask for Saul's permission. Yes, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, he changes, Saul's, he changes Saul's passion. He changes his will so that in the end, God does for Saul exactly what Saul wants, but only because God made him want it to be so. God overrides Paul's um, individuality, his consent, and he just saves him. Now watch what happens. Write down at the very end the word salvation. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, This is where Saul actually gets saved. But I want you to, to listen to, in light of what we just read, the words of Christ to Saul about who Saul is persecuting. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Ananias, in verse 17, Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him. In light of that, whose hands are being laid on this man? The hands of Christ. The hands of Christ. And whose voice looks at this lost, murdering, threatening Christ hater and says, Brother, I'm here so that you can receive your sight. Whose voice is that? It's the voice of Christ. Listen. Salvation. When we share the gospel, we are sharing the gospel on behalf of Christ. It is God who is making his appeal through us to be reconciled to Christ. And so God, through the agency of Ananias, comes in and lays Christ's hands upon him. And the voice of Christ calls him Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this prideful, arrogant, self-righteous murderer submits to being helped by a guy he's never heard of and who has no great reputation. And immediately, something like scales fell off from his eyes. I'm not going to fight you on this, but what kind of animals, biblically, significant animals have scales? Anybody? Serpents, yeah. Um, the God of this world is blinding the hearts and minds of men so they will not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Saul has been blinded. He was already blind. Then he got physically blind. And now, through the sovereign grace of God, something like scales fall from his eyes and he regained his sight. And brothers and sisters, could this man ever see from henceforth? Could he ever see the glory of Christ? Then he rose and was baptized and taking food. He was strengthened. Now, I'm going to close with this. Right beside the, uh, verse 20, the word result. Um, if you look, my Bible has a break, a chat, like a, a section break there. Taking food, he was strengthened. There's a period and there's a section break. Did you know that verse 19 runs, it's halved there? Taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately... He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. So this one who came to find Jesus' followers and arrest them is now immediately preaching Christ. And all who heard Him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon His name? And has He not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The result of God working on this man and causing him to be born again is that the first thing that he does, this sinner who's a recipient of the grace of Christ, the first thing he does is turn and immediately try and give it to everybody else. That's amazing. Let me pray for us and we'll be done. Father God, um, I don't think any of us uh, have been physically blinded in the same way when you called us into faith in your son. But most of us who came late um, know exactly what it is to be chasing after something. And by your sovereign grace and mercy to us, you broke us of that pursuit. And you, you gave us a new pursuit. You gave us a new pleasure. You gave us the grace of your son, Jesus. So we thank you. But as we look at this, we find ourselves with Saul. 
that if you didn't, if you hadn't have intercepted us, if you hadn't have acted as an outside force upon us, we would have either stayed at rest outside of Christ or continued our movement outside of Christ. But none of us would have ever on our own come to him because we are so smart. But you called us in your grace, in your sovereign grace. You called us to yourself. And so we thank you. Thank you for treating us so well. Thank you for dragging us back from the brink. Thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Zechariah 2, verse 8. He who touches you touches the apple of my eye. This is a table of covenant reminder. We remember the body broken and the blood shed and the result of this work. It isn't right for us to remember the work, but not the purpose for which it was done. Jesus did this so that God's manifold glory and grace would be displayed through the church. And it is displayed greatest when sinners enjoy it. We need to own our own faults, that's for sure. But we need to own his word and his work as well. Because of him, you are his. You are welcome. You belong here. So you come remembering him and remembering who you are in him. You come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, as we eat and drink in faith, remembering the broken body of your son, remembering the shed blood of Christ, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would impart these blessings to us, that you would drive them home, Lord, that none of us would, um, would leave this place still wondering as to whether or not these things are ours. Would you give us the, um, the conviction and the assurance that ought to come by faith in Christ? Would you do for us what we have no power to do for ourselves, Lord? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of Christ. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. Lord Jesus, our great hope is that you have died. You obeyed to the end and laid down your life for us. Our great hope is that after that three days, you rose from the dead and ascended on high. Our great hope is that you rule and reign right now as the crucified and risen Lord. And so we gladly remember you and we gladly proclaim your death with a forward-looking hope until you come. It does not end like this. It doesn't end here. You will come back. Your glory will cover the earth like water covers the sea. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we eat this bread and drink this cup, proclaiming your death until you come. And would you come soon? We ask it in your name. Amen.